listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. Welcome to Dairy Voice. I'm your host, Joel Hastings. We're talking today about a worrisome new contaminant that may have far-reaching impact on dairy farms. We call them PFAS. We have two experts with us who will be sharing their insights. Some of you listening may have heard them present at several industry meetings in recent weeks. Leah Zimba is a partner in the law firm of Michael Best, based in Madison, Wisconsin. She's a co-chair of the firm's agribusiness, food, and beverage industry group. Leah serves as a counselor, litigator, and negotiator for clients facing challenges on environmental, food safety, and regulatory compliance issues. She has experience advising clients on PFAS-related concerns. Leah grew up in a dairy farm family, and her husband is a dairy. Welcome, Leah. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Matthew Schroeder, a senior environmental engineer with the Dragon Corporation. Matt has 25 years of experience in environmental remediation and compliance for industrial, municipal, commercial, and agricultural clients. Welcome, Matt. Glad you could join us. Glad to be here. As our technical specialist, we'll ask Matt, what the heck are PFAS? Well, PFAS are actually not just a single chemical. It's a class of chemicals, uh, about 5,000 of them, that were originally made back in the 1940s. And they're defined by a, a bond between carbon and fluorine that's actually the strongest bond in nature. And because of, of that chemistry, uh, they have some properties that give them uh, wide use in commerce. For example, they are repel oil and water. Um, they're temperature resistant, so they don't break down in high heat. And they also reduce friction, so they, they can be nonstick. And some of the things that you might recognize that, that have a lot of PFAS in them are Scotchgard and Teflon and Gore-Tex. So quite a few of the things that we might find in our own house. And we find lots of those. But what, uh, you know, why should we be concerned about them in agriculture particularly? Well, um, recently uh, they've come to be uh, a focus in our industry because we've found that they uh, have potentially some uh, health issues at some very low levels. Um, in our industry, we typically talk about things in the part per thousand or part per million range when we're looking at potential health effects. Well, we're looking at PFAS in the part per trillion range. And so a combination of, of realizing that along with advances in the way we test for them and that we can now find them in this part per trillion range, um, they've gotten a lot more exposure lately, um, including where they may have impacted some farms. Well, how do they, uh, how do they get to a farm? How do they get to a dairy farm in particular? We've, we've seen that sad example of the dairy farm uh, in New Mexico. Right. We'll probably talk about a couple of other uh, sad cases, but uh, how does that happen? Well, it, it, the, the one in New Mexico is a good example. So that farm is next to a former Air Force base. And at uh, a lot of um, military bases, airports, um, refineries, they use a product called aqueous film forming foam to fight fires that happen when uh, there's a fuel spill. And uh, when that happens, it, they're great for putting out the fire, but the AFFF is full of PFAS and tends to get into the environment. And uh, in this case, had gotten into the groundwater, which then flowed under the farm and impacted the supply wells that the dairy was using to feed the cow, to water the cows, and even for drinking for the people on the farm. 
And so that's one way that, that a dairy can be impacted. There's another example of a dairy in Maine um, that also had some PFAS impacts in their water and uh, in their herd. And it ended up being related back to uh, biosolids or sewage sludge that had been spread on their farmlands. Um, it turns out that when these chemicals, the PFAS, go to a wastewater treatment plant, they somewhat get concentrated within the biosolids that the treatment plant uses to treat the water. And traditionally, over the past you know, 50 years or so, those have been spread on farms as agricultural amendments. Well, now we're finding out that that is a potential way that PFAS are impacting these farms if the wastewater treatment plant was getting PFAS from some of their customers. We just saw a news report uh, just this week of, uh, of a same situation in Lapeer, Michigan, a, a dairy farm that uh, had uh, biosolids spread on its, on its land. Is that the same, same thing that happened in, in Maine? Yeah, so this is actually kind of right in my backyard, um, just a little bit north of our office here in Michigan. And um, it was a metal plater, and uh, metal platers use uh, PFAS-containing uh, chemical as a mist suppressant so that their workers aren't breathing the chemicals that they use in their plating baths. Well, this, this company for a long time was sending their wastewater to the industrial wastewater, or to the municipal wastewater treatment plant in Lapeer. As they were doing that, the uh, PFAS chemicals were getting into the biosolids. Um, they had a program with some local farms where they were taking the biosolids to the farms and spreading them as amendments. And they've found that uh, it's had an impact on um, the soil and the groundwater near uh, those farms where the biosolids were being spread. Leah, you might invite, I'd invite you to, to join us here uh, again with your dairy perspective and your legal perspective. What's been your experience to this point? Yeah, thanks, Joel. Um, this honestly is a, is a really challenging issue. It's challenging to really understand uh, the regulatory thresholds that that um, are being looked at in various states and in, across the country. Um, and it's challenging to think about the unknowns as to how it might be impacting, you know, dairy facilities specifically across the country. Part of the issue has been, you know, kind of this patchwork of regulatory framework that that's kind of cropped up across the United States. EPA has been working on PFAS-related issues for, for more than 10 years. Um, and they've offered different, uh, you know, uh, health advisories and drinking water health advisories. Um, and just earlier in 2019, released an EPA action plan for PFAS, uh, focusing on both regulatory enforcement and monitoring and risk communication techniques to, to really kind of advance the regulatory framework. But in the interim, states have moved ahead and have passed kind of a variety of either surface water drinking water, or in some cases, soil and soil remediation limits. And as Matt alluded to in the beginning, we're talking about parts per trillion in the environment, be it soil uh, or water. And just to give some perspective, one fact I like to add is a part per trillion is the equivalent of one grain of sand in an Olympic-sized pool. So some of the regulatory requirements that we're talking about are 220 parts per trillion to 20 grains of sand in an Olympic-sized pool. These are very small levels. And that I think is raising a lot of questions. It's raising a lot of questions about, you know, what the, what the exposure threshold might be in the environment, 
uh, both for people and animals, and really how these um, how these compounds are taken up in in crops and and how they might end up in in food products. FDA has done some sampling of food products, and they've done this for several years. This isn't a new thing, and they've generally found the food supply to be very safe. But as you can imagine, the risk communication aspect, as people become concerned about this and they see reports on the local news, um, they start to ask questions, and it's difficult to have a conversation without getting in the weeds really quickly on both the regulatory side and in the kind of technical toxicology side. Here's a word from our sponsor, INTL FC Stone. How could the dairy markets be impacted by the global economy next year? Come to Vision 2020, Global Markets Outlook next February in Orlando and find out. INTL FC Stone's premier event will combine industry-leading economic and commodity outlooks all in one conference. Registration opening soon. For details, visit ifcs.co slash vision 2020. Again, that's ifcs.co slash vision 2020. And we're back speaking today with Leah Zimba and Matt Schroeder talking about PFAS. Either one of you may be able to, to, to address this question of mine, but uh, one question would be, is there, does this get into the milk on a dairy farm if I'm feeding feedstuffs that have been harvested from my ground? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll start and then Matt might have more to add. It can. Um, and the farm example that we talked about earlier um, in New Mexico, it, it was found in, in milk from, from cows that had ingested uh, water that had been contaminated by that nearby Air Force Base and potentially, you know, via uh, crop uptake to feed. That is not, the sampling is a very specific process that has to be done. And that is not a widespread or common issue. So, you know, Joel, the answer is kind of, it depends, right? It can uh, appear in milk, but it is not a widespread issue at this time. Um, I think people are thinking about, you know, whether it's appropriate to test for product, but really the, the right approach, approach is looking if you're in an area that might have had biosolids applied or if you're in an area near a known facility that had a release. A chrome plater in Michigan is one example. Uh, an Air Force base that used the firefighting foam is another. If you're in an area that has a known source, you know, right nearby or you've had biosolids applied to your landfills for decades um, and you have some information about the source of those biosolids, that might, you know, ask result in you asking some more questions about, you know, the risk profile in your operation. But I think it's very important that we emphasize that, you know, FDA and USDA have been very clear that the food supply is safe. It, it's really uh, looking at some individual cases where there might be some exposure pathways that require some further investigation. Yeah, I'll add to, to Leah's answer that um, she had spoken about some FDA testing that has gone on over the past number of years, and milk is one of the things that they tested. And although they did find PFAS in some of their testing, it was always related to a dairy that was near a known problem. So basically, it was kind of where you might expect to find some of the PFAS to be an issue. Generally, the dairy samples that they collected didn't show any signs of PFAS. In uh, one of the presentations I heard you make, Matt, a bit ago, you showed a map 
of where PFAS, uh, I'll call them PFAS sites. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a little, as a, as a novice to this whole topic, I was kind of shocked by how many there were. And you also pointed out that Michigan's kind of ground zero because of the amount of testing that's gone on for the water issues in Michigan. Where do we, where do we find these things and what's the frequency? Well, I think the most uh, common place to find them is, number one, near a place where they were used in a manufacturing process. So whether that's they were actually manufactured there or used in a process to maybe uh, coat paper or uh, Scotchgard uh, clothing or uh, boots or something like that. Or uh, a lot of the sites uh, have come from this firefighting foam that I mentioned previously with respect to the New Mexico dairy. So basically every military base and commercial airport is required to use this firefighting foam and they're required to train with it on an annual basis. And until recently, people didn't really know that that was a, a problem with the environment. And so it was a fairly common practice to just let that uh, material run off the pavement into the ground. And so that's where I think you're seeing a lot of the problems is related to the AFFF um, and the, the firefighting foam that's been used at all of these military sites and airports across the country. I'll also just add, because of the pervasive nature of the compounds, right? Uh, Matt gave some examples of how they're used in just everyday clothing, you know, materials we, we literally come into contact every day. When you look for it, you, you tend to find it, particularly at the low levels that uh, we're talking about, again, the part per trillion level. And so, uh, you know, Joel, your observation is correct. If you were just going to look at a map, it looks like Michigan is ground zero. But in fact, it's, it's due to the aggressive sampling and testing initiative that Michigan has made that's, you know, that has, we have a lot more information about that. Other states are looking at Michigan sampling, and, and certainly there's other states that are, are, are actively doing sampling to inform kind of the risk profiles about uh, sites that might require some more investigation. But, you know, rest assured, I don't think it's uh, anything unique about Michigan. It's just that Michigan is, is ahead of the curve, uh, in part because of their focus on uh, water quality safety. When we were chatting a, a bit earlier, Leah, you were describing to me the uh, challenge to test for this uh, PFAS, how carefully it has to be done, the fact that uh, there aren't that many labs that can find it, and there's variations in what the labs find. Maybe each of you could just uh, share a little bit about the testing situation, which doesn't sound, when we say testing, in my mind, it seems like, well, test for it, there it is, or it's not. It sounds like the science is evolving here. Certainly, maybe I can uh, give you some of my thoughts first. So on the, the laboratory side of things, uh, you did mention that there's relatively few labs that have the capability to test for these compounds compared to the whole suite of laboratories that's out there. There's a, a relatively high level of capital investment to be able to have the equipment to do this. And even when you have that, there's a lot of uh, uh, steps that have to be taken to make sure that the testing is viable before they, they can uh, do it. So there is a limited availability of testing. And just because of the fact that we're testing down to such low levels and PFAS are in so many of the things that are in our everyday lives, like our rain gear and sunscreen and things like that, there's a lot of chance for cross-contamination when sampling. And so you have to, the sampling methodology has to be really rigorous to make sure that the samples are, are representative and you're not getting false positives during the sampling just from something that the, uh, might come in contact with as you're sampling. I don't want to be gender specific here, Leah, but you were mentioning that uh, in that regard, the tester doesn't wear makeup or 
can't wear nail polish or uh, right. That's right. I mean, it almost seems like you can't, uh, you know, no, no makeup, perfume, deodorant, you know, because uh, these compounds are, are prevalent in a lot of those lotions, you know, those sorts of things are would, would have the potential for cross contamination as Matt identified. So it, as as simple as, uh, you know, rain gear or, you know, a, a fleece or a pullover that might have uh, a fabric conditioner that could, could have some cross contamination. So there are some very specific kind of sampling protocols that would differ from your uh, standard uh, water quality sampling. You know, certain tubing has to be used or, or cannot be used. Um, the samples have to be preserved a certain way. So, you know, as, as more uh, sampling occurs, I think labs are getting uh, better at understanding that, you know, operating procedure. Because we're talking about such low levels, I, you know, I just think there's a high concern for getting, you know, your data is only as good as, as uh, you know, the, the process that was used to generate it. And, and I always get concerned at generating data that it's not, doesn't, it may not be clearly representative of um, the actual facts. And so I think, you know, there's, in, in certain respects, the science, you know, hasn't really caught up with the, the regulatory approach in some states. And, and certainly the communication to, you know, those in the public to get an understanding of kind of how sampling must occur and, and kind of the value of that data and how to use it. Following up a little bit on what Leah said about generating data is that, you know, the, there are some regulatory standards out there for either drinking water or groundwater, but really there aren't any standards out there for food products or milk or um, even soil and biosolids, you know, we're really kind of guessing as to what is a safe level in any of those things. And so there's some question in the data analysis portion that if you get some data that says you have PFAS in, you know, let's say the dairy milk, what level is safe and what level is unsafe is still really unclear right now. Yeah, that's a really good point, Matt. You know, the toxicologists that have reviewed this data, um, and this isn't just a United States issue, this is really a global question. And some countries have been uh, working on these issues longer um, and, and, you know, you know, focusing on, on related issues. Uh, but if you get a, you know, room of toxicologists together looking at this data, you, you might get a room full of opinions. You're likely to. And so that's, a, that's also, you know, difficult to, to communicate to people to make them understand the data uh, and the toxicology. And also, uh, you'll feel very comfortable about the safety of the food supply, which again, I think is, is a really important point. We were talking about, you know, FDA sampling of products. One of the products in the last sampling round that came up with the highest level of PFAS was chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. Um, you know, you don't think of that as being, you know, a, a food product that might uh, be high in that. And, and, and I, I certainly don't want to um, imply that, you know, chocolate cake with chocolate frosting is unsafe. I, I had some yesterday evening, but you know, it's it's really kind of an example of needing to understand the data. Uh, just because PFAS is found does not mean, or a PFAS compound, and again, there's there's thousands of these, does not make that food product unsafe. It really uh, means that there might need to be more communication about what what that level means. We all have PFAS uh, compounds in our blood uh, just from our everyday interaction based on our daily lives. And, and I think that's also something that, that people should recognize is, is an indication of just how pervasive these compounds are. Maybe as we uh, get ready to wind up here, I'd ask a question that as a dairy producer or a farmer, you know, what am I supposed to do? Uh, what, are my, what are my chances of having a problem? 
Well, I'll start, um, and, and Matt certainly can uh, can add in. You know, first, I think, uh, you know, remain, you know, I would suggest everyone remain level-headed about this, you know, from the from the regulators and Congress to the, you know, state regulators and, and certainly farmers. You know, I think it's important to think about if you have been applying biosolids to your, to your land or land that you rent, you know, realizing that information about the source of those biosolids, that's not a bad idea to, to think about. And, you know, certainly, there's a lot of information available about sites that maybe are known to either manufacture PFAS or, uh, you know, common areas like Air Force bases and, and military bases um, and airports. And so if you're, if you have a farm located near those areas, you should note that, I think, and, you know, pay attention to the regulatory process that might be occurring on your state, in your state. Again, a lot of states are moving ahead and there's a lot of focus areas. Wisconsin is a good example, kind of following in the, the footsteps of Michigan and Minnesota. They have a lot of work groups, including several focused on the biosolids issue. So I think maintaining um, information and keeping informed about the process that might be occurring in your state is a good idea. And then thinking about whether or not your property might be in an area that is is closer to, you know, one of those kind of common risk areas. Um, I think that's a good place to start. Learning more about this is, is always good. Um, and, and kind of putting it into the appropriate context, I think, is, is a helpful place to start. Matt, is mitigation, is it too soon to, to think about mitigation? Again, taking the New Mexico example, uh, is there any opportunity to mitigate the, the contamination that's already occurred? Yeah, so yeah. The, the people who have the PFAS in their water and uh, want to try and treat it uh, before use of that water are mainly doing two processes. Both of them are really the same kind of thing where they're using uh, something that the PFAS will absorb to to pull it out of the water before it's used. So either a carbon filter similar to what you would use on your drinking water tap or a similar process with ion exchange that uses a resin that the PFAS will stick to. And those two types of of treatment systems can remove the PFAS. Unfortunately, they're relatively expensive to operate just because of the low levels of PFAS that you're trying to get to. So they can be a costly situation. And I would suggest that you don't want to probably preemptively do that until you really know that you have a problem just because of the cost associated. Any final thoughts from either one of you as we wrap up here? Well, I'll echo what Leah said for the producers. I would uh, definitely pay attention to developments. There's a lot changing uh, with PFAS and the way that it's being regulated and the science behind it. And so I think the best thing that the dairy farmers can do is try and stay up on what's going on and make sure they're they're as educated as they can be, Um, you know, whether it's through organizations like yours or through their co-ops to try and make sure that they're getting good information about PFAS and how it could affect them. Yeah, that's an excellent that's an excellent comment, Matt. And and really, if uh, if a producer wants to, if thinks they might be in an area that they've applied biosolids or in an area of a source, you know, manufacturer, you know, I think um, talking with professionals that focus on this area is a good thing. Not every environmental consultant understands the risks and is really in the in the best position to provide guidance and and help. So, you know, I'm a strong proponent of of, of getting the right resources if you have questions or want some more information about. Um, uh, what may or may not be uh, something you'd want to look at uh, further in, at, at your at your property. Well, this has been a very uh, fascinating and informative conversation. I appreciate you both joining us. Again, we've been hearing from Leah Zimba and Matt Schroeder, and uh, we thank you for joining us.